You know the shape of the leaf of the lily. You know, it's as simple as the format that it is, long and sweeping, just this beautiful line. Take a leg of a grasshopper, so elegant, so strong, you know, and it's proportionately beautiful. When I need help with proportions or beauty and design and textures, I always go to nature. <laughs> and I get blown away every time. My name, Eric Watanabe. Design influences every part of our lives. Think about what you wear, what you drive, how you interact in the world, how entire cities operate. Almost everything in our lives is designed by people. Eric Watanabe is an industrial designer at Skunk Works. He collaborates with conceptual designers to imagine future aircraft. One of these conceptual designers is Eric Schrock, a director at Lockheed Martin and former lead of the Skunk Works conceptual design team. Well, ever since I was a kid growing up in the middle of nowhere, western Pennsylvania, I wanted to design airplanes for the Skunk Works. Not only did I like airplanes, but all of my favorite airplanes came from one place. I think conceptual design is a little bit different than a lot of other engineering disciplines because you have to be comfortable with a blank sheet of paper. And a lot of times, if you look at the way that engineers are schooled, they have a lot of the parameters they need in order to solve a problem. But a conceptual design problem is so much more broad than that because so much is yet to be determined. It's what makes it a really exciting playground with so many different unknowns. So conceptual design is the very beginning stages of aircraft design, and really it's the essence of the skunk works. Not only do we determine in conceptual design how an airplane looks and how it performs, but also a lot of the things about how it's going to serve its purpose for its entire life. Aircraft design is really unique because it is the ultimate in form follows function because an airplane has to go through the air, and the aerodynamic drag of that airplane is a huge determinant on how it's going to perform. It has to have a lot of characteristics that make it attractive to the eye. A lot of people will say, if it doesn't look good, it won't fly good. And there's a lot in history, a lot of real obvious examples of that. I remember early in my career getting things, feedback from your vice presidents who would say, you just need to make it sexy. Well, what does that mean? This is Brian Hirschberger. He currently leads the conceptual design team at Skunk Works and has worked closely with Eric Schrock throughout his career. So if you rewind back to the drawing board days when you had rooms full of designers and they had a pen and a piece of paper, and so they were very connected with what the things that they were drawing looked like the tyranny of the line <laughs> tends to be very unesthetic, where the curve is very beautiful. And making curves that are very aesthetic were really hard. The whole industry of what they called lofting, it was a ship industry term, and what they would do is they would take all of the people who would draw what the ship looked like, and they would put them up in the loft, where they could roll out large pieces of paper, and they would take splines, which were a piece of lead that was flexible, and you could bend that lead to control where they went. You had these things called ducts, and it was like a little heavy lead thing, and you could 
have this little needle that would point down and you have control points and you could build this very gentle, nice curve. Well, that now gets replicated in the digital world, but now you have this distortion of the digital world versus the physical world. We still call them Lofsman, but now it's being done digitally. So it's very easy with this disconnection in the digital world to start getting very harsh-looking designs that came out. Um, so we've wrestled with this for a long time as we've gone through this transformation. So one of the things we wanted to do in the conceptual design organization was to have a lot of education for our people. We had classes on how to do basic design. We had classes on how to do analysis for conceptual designers. And one of the classes that we developed was how to bring aesthetics into conceptual design. One of the things that are really important for conceptual designers and something that makes them really powerful is that they're not just engineers. You know, I always look for those people in their resumes that might have that they were also had a minor in theater or they played in a band or that they were an artist or something that really, you know, showed that they had a creative bent to them and then we could try to encourage them. Some people had a knack for it. Some people come into the group and we always look for individuals that have a very strong left brain, right brain balance that manifests itself in many ways. Sometimes it's just the ability to see through a problem differently using your creative side and then being able to balance that against your analytical side so that you know does it work or not. And be able to trade back and forth fluidically between those within the day, right? Arguing with yourself almost. So in order to take those kind of people and make them more effective and let them know it was okay, we sponsored courses to say, hey, here's some discussions on creativity from people. And the first one we did was led by somebody that was also an artist on the side. We then found that in our midst, we had somebody that was a trained industrial designer from art school. And we told him some of the things that we were trying to do. And he was so encouraged to come and help us and work with some of these new designers hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder, Notice I didn't say on the computer, but add a real drawing board. Have them develop concepts, some basic ideas of what form means, and expressing themselves in ways they probably never did before. This new collaboration between an industrial designer without a formal education in engineering and the conceptual design team, most of whom have no formal education in art, began by practicing. This idea had always been out there that we need to find a better way within the design team to intersect with a graphic artist. We didn't realize we had been tripping over it for years. And then when we found it, we just started to practice. And so the first thing we did was we had a program program we were working on, and we, had, we were trying to just come up with different ideas. And we sat down with Eric, and we said, okay, these are the kind of things that we're thinking about. We'd like you to go take a couple days. We just want you to kind of come up with some ideas. And Eric was very sensitive about, well, I want to make sure I draw it right. And I was like, there's no, there's no right. Just draw some things. And we still, to this day, we still have a wall full of these very fantastic images that he was able to create. Ideas never come to me at my table. I have a Beautiful table, all clean, nothing on it, great lighting, all my pens and markers all lined up, erasers here, pencils all sharpened. Nothing, nothing comes to my mind. But times where I have none of this around me is a time when the ideas start coming out. (laughs) 
Once again, this is Eric Watanabe. In his search for future aircraft forms, he draws inspiration from nature, classic car designs, and even music. Many of his ideas come to him on his morning commute, which is why he always keeps a sketchbook close by. Oh, I, I just listen to jazz, oh, but I turn it softly, you know, it's, so it's kind of like background music. I stay on the right lane. Sometimes I follow those dump trucks, set it on cruise control, and I think, think about the ideas. Eric's love for design began with another love that many children share. I used to love earth-moving machines. Backhoes, bulldozers, cranes. They were like dinosaurs. They all had a character. These huge monsters. I was so impressed. I would stand and watch behind the fence for hours at how these things moved. To this day, I still go to construction sites and I love to see those huge earth-moving machines. First, I went to the University of Hawaii and going into drawing and painting. I loved it so much, but I couldn't make a living in that. So I went into graphics. And so my uncle's working for Panasonic Matsushita in Japan. I saw how he lived and I said, wow, that's what I want to do. I said, well, there's no industrial design program in Hawaii. So he said, just do well in graphic design. Design is design. He said, consider Art Center. That's where he went. So it was uh, Art Center College of Design here in Pasadena. Spent my four years there and got out with a Bachelor of Science degree in industrial design. You know, brainstorming and coming up with ideation uh, sketches and the evolution of this kind of thing, it, it's, it's much like a hunter or like fishing. You get a hunch. So you go there, nothing happening. You go to another place, nothing happening. If you told me 41 years ago that a designer works like this, I would have never been a designer. I thought they'd do just styling beautiful things and that's it, get it out, right? And first and second idea. Not so. There's a long, long trail just not taking a first and second ideas. It might be an 80th idea. And as creatives, you know, we're really incredibly used to uncertainty. We court with uncertainty. If you want to be innovative and truly different, we have to understand that we don't know where we're going to end up when we start this. I love the hunt. The hunt begins with a small list of requirements from the conceptual design team. Here are some attributes that I want. Go start drawing some sketches. And the, rather than the... They might tell Eric the aircraft needs to be fast, fly high. It might be a single or a twin engine. They're doing the roughs. Okay, it's going to be a twin tail. It's going to have this. I'm copying it and roughing it in front of them. No, no, yeah, yeah. Okay. With this small amount of information, Eric begins to create a series of ideations. 
I get asked a lot about brainstorms, and I say do quiet ideations instead. Give everyone a post-it note or a paper to ideate for 15-20 minutes. Put some form around that idea. If you can't ideate, I have a short class on that. It's not about pretty pictures. Ideation is about generating as many solutions, good or bad, sometimes seeing the problem with vu-ja-de, not deja vu, to see the problem as though you saw it for the first time. Sketching allows our minds to release the present idea and go on to the next and the next without fear of losing the idea. It frees our minds to pursue further than we thought we could. Make a mistake, put it down, and go on. Use a large sheet of paper, not an 8.5 by 11, go 22 by 18, huge and use your whole body, not your wrist, your shoulder. Throw your shoulder into it and make those lines as fluid as possible. Feel how that air presses against that surface. Sketch through the aircraft so that it's as though you have a glass aircraft. You can see the other side of the aircraft and everything inside and that will help to give life to that skin. If you work light, you can still move around. Sometimes it's two or three ideas going on at the same time. The thing is you want to do it fast and get it out of the way so that next one comes and, and you can move. At times I'll just write down the note. It's quicker. <laughs> Short sentence. Even if it's a stick figure, you know just so I don't forget. How many sketches I do per request? Sometimes I've done five, sometimes I've done 15. Because an idea usually has a bunch of rabbit trails coming out of it. And I'll select from that and that has more, it opens it up. I think the first big project that we did together was Rob Weiss, the, the chief skunk at the time. He wanted to create a future fighter, a vision vehicle to be able to do conceptual design trades around. Because this, this program isn't about the airplane, it's about the methods by which we develop airplanes. Okay, Eric, draw some draw some stuff up, come up with some sketches. It wasn't that we couldn't have done the same thing in, in, in the computer, because we can. We know, we know how to do that. Eric was able to generate six different concepts in about a day and a half, just quick sketches. We were able to sit down very quickly and say, okay, Rob, not actually sure what you're at looking for, but here's some ideas. And we walked out of that meeting with, I want this with a little bit of that and a dash of that. And very quickly turned that into an image that you might see out on the internet now that, that's associated with Lockheed Martin. So that was an immensely valuable tool, not only to be able to be fast about what we do, but to, to help get clarity on a fairly vague question. I want a future fighter. Wow, there's a lot of ways to do that. 
I think the coolest thing that came out of that was when you know, we were doing this for a presentation Rob was doing at AAA, and when uh, he got up and briefed AAA, one of Eric's sketches was on the cover page. I was asked to just kind of uh, play around with the idea of, of this unmanned vehicle, uh, what they call UAVs, uh, that would be first in the theater. The engineer came to me and said, Eric, I want these small missiles to maybe rotate around the fuselage, much like a, a cowboy's revolver. So I did sketches of that, and it, they were ugly. There's no payload bay doors. This thing is all exposed, and are you crazy? This won't work. It looks ugly. This is my tenth sketch of this, but I kept going at it over and over and redoing it, and, and lo and behold, it started to take on a, a, a much better character, and, and I realized, man, I was so wrong. You know, this is a great idea. I, well, I don't know how it'll fly. You know, that's, that's another big question. Eric went back, created a couple things, and then from what he created, we put that into Katia. Because now we had something that had an art, artistic starting point, and now we were going to go apply some of our tools and methods to be able to explore maybe the right balance of how it should be shaped. But we started with something that was aesthetic rather than trying to start with something that was just a wing and a tail and a body. So there's two benefits to doing it this way. One is early on in a program, you start off with a vision of where you're heading. You can do what art does, which is capture people's thoughts and emotions. And you can do that very quickly. If you put a very boxy-looking CAD-drawn thing out there, it okay, obviously you're just like, you know, playing around with a toy. But if you put a sketch out in front of somebody, it's amazing the how different the reaction is. It feels different. It puts your mind in a different place. A guy like me, I, I'm not cursed with knowledge. I might stumble on something, maybe. <laughs> I always have engineers there to catch me from falling too far. To find freshness, you almost have to find it in individuals who, in some ways, don't even know what they're doing. My name is Simon Silva, and I don't know what I am, kind of a jack-of-all-trades, but I call myself a creativity crusader. And both Eric and I both went to Art Center back in the early 80s. Him as a product design and me as an illustration major. I started doing public speaking because people felt that I had an interesting background. I uh, grew up as a migrant student and a migrant worker, so we, my family and I traveled up and down the state of California, up north to Washington State. Simone Silva is passionate about teaching people of all ages to embrace their inner artist. Simone is a graphic artist at Skunkworks and the author of Cultivate a Creative Mind. According to Simone, curiosity and new environments foster creativity. I found uh, that my middle son actually taught me 
that most of us live our life in the middle of the dial, right? I was listening to some jazz, and so he said I was listening to it too loud, so he wanted me to turn it 50% down, and that gave me a whole different dynamic, a different experience of it. Creativity is also about being quiet and taking in information. But see, but here's, here's the thing, though. I was, you know, going down the valley behind this big truck, and it said, you know, this truck had like, I don't know, 350 horsepower. And I couldn't pass it because it was a two-lane highway. And so I had all this time in the world to think, yeah, I've always kind of wondered about that whole horsepower thing, right? I mean, where did they come from? Did it come from a horse? I mean, what kind of a horse was it? Was it a big horse, small horse? I mean, where did it come from? And so I had to Google that. But I, I, I thought to myself, well, if you can do the horsepower thing, right, then if you can go forward, then you can come up with the same concept going backwards. And so I thought, okay, so I'll invent this device that cleans out the wax in our ears, but how much, how much power does it need? I figured maybe 24 horsefly power, right, needed to clean our ears. And it's just, it's just a crazy example of collecting information but but digesting it and also applying it and i think most people who live in a paradigm within their own professionalism whether it's film conceptual design you know illustration whatever it may be i think they 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 suffer the consequences of the paradigm of being too long in this singular art form you know and so the 21st century is really about those 21st century skills you know where we're talking about improvisation creativity thinking outside the box None of that stuff really matters if you don't know how to apply the information. And so it's important for us in the 21st century to be able to accumulate other abilities and other applications because a lot of our ideas may not fit in what we currently are practicing. And that's why I think that it's the dynamic of being able to write. For me, it's very liquid. You know, I can move paragraphs even before I even publish it, right? Uh, I can't do that with art, with painting, right? I have to start all over again or, you know, it's more difficult. Um, the same thing, you know, with speaking. It's a different dynamic. It's a different experience. You know, what we're asking is for creative people to be instantaneously brilliant. We have to practice brilliance all the time in small amounts. It's sort of like sports, you know? These guys practice off-season, weight training and a lot of energy just for that one few brilliant few seconds out on the field where he catches the ball. And Well, there's a lot of work that went into that. We don't see it, you know? <laughs> it's the same thing, right? So these creative people have to be doing this in, in small amounts every time. So when the right time comes, bam! So the relationship of industrial design and aerospace engineering is really an interesting one. If you think back to like the 1950s when jet aircraft started first coming on the scene, what did you see in the industrial design space? You saw a lot of streamlining. You saw, think of the fins on a 57 Chevy. Is it a coincidence that those type of design cues showed up in automobiles not too long after we started producing jet aircraft? 
long lines of Art Deco systems or those gentle curved surfaces had a lot to do with the similar design cues that you saw in propeller airplanes from the Second World War, whether it was a P-38 or a P-51 or a B-17. They all had similar streamlined things, and that worked its way into the design vocabulary of things that showed up in everyday products. Take a look at uh, Raymond Lowy, one of the more well-noted American industrial designers. You might not know his name, but if I said things like the Avanti Automobile, the Greyhound Bus, the Shell Oil Company, the Quaker Oats Company, they all came from, from his hand. So the relationship between aerospace and industrial design is, is really an interesting one when you go back through the years. If you take a look at a lot of those forms that have come out of the Skunk Works, the SR-71 or the uh, U-2 or the YF-22, a lot of those shapes are the things that we're known for. So you see that, and that conveys something to people. It conveys speed. It conveys competence. It conveys the ability to uh, spy on people undetected. So what I always say about conceptual design is that there's four parts to every answer. There's the answer itself. There is all of the assumptions you took to get to that answer. Because given different assumptions, everybody is going to reach a different conclusion. Uh, because there is such a large span of time between when something is originally put down on paper from a conceptual design standpoint and when it actually sees the ramp and is ready to take off on its first flight, I want to know what the sensitivities are to those assumptions because everything's going to change. And you want to see how robust that design is to those changes. And last part is really important. It's if all of that other stuff doesn't work, what's your fallback position? Because if you can answer all four parts about a design that you're working on, chances are you've thought it through pretty well. And we'll be able to see the evidence of the designer's thought process and what he or she did from an aesthetic perspective is every bit as important. What the future of conceptual design will look like is debatable and something Brian thinks about quite a bit. We try to try to expose a lot of people in the Skunk Works to what conceptual design means. And, and Lee Nikolai, who's one of the fathers of the conceptual design, he, he teaches this class every year. And what Lee usually says is, you know, someday a computer may be able to design an airplane built by itself, but it won't be able to make one that looks good. I mean, artificial intelligence at its core is machine learning. So is that really artificial intelligence yet? Well, we call it that, but the way we create that artificial intelligence is by having the machine learn. So I believe that if you fed a machine all of the airplanes that looked good and you allowed people to say which ones look good for you versus good for you, it would at least start to have some calculus by which it would decide. But that's not really creating a new thing. It says people like the way the F-16 looks, therefore everything wants to look like an F-16. So now, okay, that just gets weird. Seems to be two kinds of aesthetics. One is the classical aesthetics that we talk about in design and art. And there's another kind of aesthetics going on. That's the one of, of physics. Physics is going to drive a lot of things. And when the physics drives stuff, it usually creates a form that seems to balance out well. I mean, look around you, right? There's a lot of things that are very aesthetic in the form of the world, and they are because they are because of physics. I mean, this crystal lamp you have to my left is beautiful because it was formed that way by material science. 
aerodynamics of a ship, the structure of a ship, the propulsion, all of that. When everything works out, it's so beautiful. Inside Skunk Works is produced in Palmdale, California and Fort Worth, Texas. Stay tuned for a bonus story with Wayne Begno, a Skunk Works 3D conceptual artist. To watch Eric Watanabe in action drawing a jet of the future, check out our show notes at LockheedMartin.com slash Inside Skunk Works. When you look at a bird, you notice that they're the wing, the way the wing flaps, a high-pressure area underneath and a low-pressure area on top, which causes lift. And that whole idea is built in anything that flies within nature. I mean, you find it with bumblebees, you find it with birds, you know, anything that flies, and even underwater. That principle still holds true. I guess my official title used to be 3D animator, multimedia engineer, but I consider myself a real traditional illustrator who's employed the latest tools in the digital world. The ideas of using a space elevator to move cargo up into space is totally feasible and it's based on the laws of physics. This was 1998, 1999 time frame, I believe. I had a lot of freedom in terms of Let's generate some type of hypersonic vehicle and the elevator cables and let's add this. There was some engineering work that went into, don't get me wrong, but there's a lot more artistic license in terms of like when it delivered the cargo to the top of the, the elevator, I was asked to create a spacecraft that would rendezvous and receive a bunch of cargo to then go off to go to Mars. I was asked to create a vehicle that goes to Mars. That didn't exist at the time. 